today is Palm Sunday, but I am not going to be preaching a Palm Sunday text, meaning I'm not going to preach the triumphal entry. We are going to stay in the book of Galatians, and as a matter of fact, uh, for those of you who got the sermon notes, uh, you are going to see I'm going to do something that I've never done before. And uh, in my preaching, I've always hoped and prayed that it would not be, it would never be obvious that I don't have formal seminary training in preaching. I, I hope that that's never obvious. But today might be one of those days because I'm going to do something today that I'm pretty sure is considered uh, not best practices uh, in regards to preaching. And what I'm going to do today is something I doubt any seminary is teaching people to do, and so maybe this is something I'll look back on one of these years and regret doing this, but we are actually going to preach the exact same text that we preached last week. We are going to preach the same text two weeks in a row. So if you would turn to Galatians chapter 1, I'm just going to briefly explain what we're doing and why we're doing it. Uh, last week, there was just so much in the text that to get to everything that I think that deserved to be got to would have taken a very long time. And so here's what I decided to do last week. I decided to take the text as one large chunk, although we didn't even technically finish it because Paul's sort of autobiographical recalling of his history goes into chapter 2, so we're still not even done with Paul's autobiography. But I, I wanted to take as much of that as I could just so we got the overall gist of why did he write this and what was his purpose. And that's what we looked at last week. We looked at verses 11 through 24, and we focused on, okay, what's the main idea here? Why did he write this? Uh, why is this such a, an important part of the letter? But as we walked through the passage, the way Paul tells his story, there's just so many uh, rabbit trails that I had to resist going down. The way he recalls his story, there's so much rich theological nuggets. It's, it's almost like imagine you're walking down a road and you see beautiful flowers that you want to pick on the side of the road, but you just you need to get to your destination. So that's what we did last week. This week, I want us to actually chase those rabbit trails. And I want us to see that Paul's autobiography, while it served one primary purpose, is still rich with theology for us to sink our teeth into. And so we're going to go back through it and now just sort of um, tie up some loose ends, if you will. As a matter of fact, I titled this Ministry Gleanings from Paul's Conversion Story. I don't know what you know what, if you're familiar with the concept of gleaning, but gleaning is an agricultural term. We see it in the Old Testament. And to glean is when um, uh, farmers come in during harvest and they harvest up their fields. They harvest all of the fruit of their labor. But that's such a huge crop that inevitably things to fall out. You know, you don't pick up every single piece of grain or potatoes or whatever it is you're harvesting. And so in the Old Testament, they had gleaning laws, which allowed the poor to go through a field which has already been harvested and sort of pick up the pieces that were not carried away. And that's sort of metaphorically what we're doing in the sermon. Last week, we harvested Paul's message. We wanted to get, what's the main idea? Why did he write this chunk? And we harvest it, and we carry it away, and we deposit it into our souls. But now what I want us to do is I want us to go back through this somewhat barren field and glean some of these pieces that we didn't really get to dive into. And as I looked at these pieces, I came up with five of them, and I felt like the way they all really fit together was that what Paul does, incidentally, is he tells us his, his, his conversion stories. He really reminds us of some very important principles for ministry. 
And I've been thinking about ministry quite a bit. Is right now we're just in very troubled times. And I've been thinking about the church and how do we minister to people? How do we help people and, and, and love God and love our neighbor in this context? And so I've been, had the church on my mind. I've had ministry on my mind. And I think we learned some really important fundamentals about ministry. These are important theological reminders. So I, I want to be very clear. What we are preaching today is not necessarily what Paul was trying to communicate. That's what we did last week. These are just sort of additional theological benefits that incidentally Paul left for us. So we're going to look at five of those, but let's go ahead and reread the text together. Galatians chapter 1, beginning again in verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who is to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And so last week, as we saw, Paul ultimately wrote this text to confirm his apostolic authority and to remind the Galatian people that his gospel is God's gospel, his gospel is the apostles' gospel, and that his authority is equal with the other apostles. That, that's the main idea of that text. But I found five really, really insightful and helpful ministry points that we can also glean from this text as well. I found five of them. And again, all of these are sort of with ministry in mind, ministering to the local church and to the people in the communities God has placed us. So we're going to look at five things from this text. And the first one is this. Apologetics matters in ministry. Apologetics matters in ministry. That word apologetics, if you're unfamiliar with it, it comes from a Greek word that we actually see in the New Testament, apologia, and it means a defense. Lawyers engage in the Greek word apologia. Lawyers provide a defense. Essentially, apologetics is the art of arguing, of defending a position, of establishing the truth of something or refuting the falsehood of something else. That's what apologetics is. Christian apologetics is defending the truth of the Christian faith, and Christian apologetics is refuting the falsehoods of other religions. And we have to understand that apologetics is very important in Christian ministry. Now, where do I get that from this text? Well, I, I will admit that uh, Paul is sort of engaging in, in very specific kind of apologetics here, right? Because he's not defending the entire Christian faith in this text. He's not defending certain theological points like the resurrection or anything of that nature. But, but, but still, the, the general tone of this text is a defense, right? Paul is defending something. He's proving something here. 
And so what that tells me is that reminds me of the Apostle Paul that we read in the book of Acts. The Apostle Paul that we just got done seeing throughout the the pastoral epistles. This was a man who believed the Christian faith was defensible. This was a man who believed that the faith that he taught, the faith that he preached, and the authority by which he preached was defensible and provable. Right, Paul didn't approach the the Galatian false teachers with this kind of, um, you know, over-spiritualized mentality like, you know what, God will vindicate me, I don't have to prove anything, I don't have to defend anything, they just need to have faith. No, Paul believed they're doubting my authority, they're doubting whether my gospel stands on good grounds, and I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to make my case, I'm going to defend myself. You see, Paul believed that the faith that he was calling the Galatians to, the gospel that he preached, this was not a gospel that was built on sand. This was not something that he just said, listen, we have really no way of knowing whether this is true. This is not verifiable. Just, just, just take it on faith. Just believe it. No, Paul believed, we see here and we see all throughout Paul's ministry and the ministry of all the apostles, that the Christian faith was defensible that it's verifiable, that it, it stands on good grounds, it stands on good authority, right? This is the same Paul who, throughout the book of Acts, was not afraid to go into the synagogue and reason from the scriptures with the Jews. Paul believed that I can show you my faith from scripture and I can win that debate. This is the same Paul who took the, the, the message of the resurrection into the Areopagus in Acts 17, and he stood face-to-face with the world's greatest secular philosophers. And he stood in the Areopagus and he preached to them the resurrection and he reasoned with people and he saved people. Paul believed, I can take this Christian faith into the, 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 uh, the, the arena of debate with the world's greatest thinkers and I can win that debate. We see all throughout the old, or forgive me, the book of Acts and the early starts of Christian faith that the Christian faith was a true, defensible, historically reliable, accurate story that the apostles were willing to prove, that they were willing to establish. And as a matter of fact, I would even challenge you that general apologetics, right, believing the Christian faith is defensible, is not just something for the apostles. It's not just something for pastors, but this is actually a call to the entire ministry of the church. Keep your marker here and turn to the book of Jude. Turn to the book of Jude. This is way in the back of your Bible. It's the second to last book of your Bible, as a matter of fact. Turn to the book of Jude. This is a new Bible for me, so the pages are still very sticky. Jude, it's right before Revelation, and there's only one chapter in Jude, so we don't um, call out a chapter when we, when we cite the text, so we're just going to look at verses 3 and 4. Jude opens up his letter this way, he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write, about, write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. 
So what's the context of Jude? It's very similar to that of Galatians, right? Jude tells them in verse 3, listen, I wanted this letter to be way happier than it is. Right? He says, I wanted to write about our common salvation. I wanted to write to you a great soteriological epistle. Just write to you a letter talking about our salvation, teaching you more about our salvation. But I have to stop and do something else. Why? Because false teachers have come in among you and they've perverted the grace of God. So now I have to write to you for a different reason. And what is he doing? In verse 3, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. That was once for all delivered to the saints. And you will find, if you were to look at verses 1 and 2, that he did not write this to PhD scholars. He did not write this to professional apologists. He didn't write this to pastors. He wrote this to all the churches, all the Christian people. And he calls all the Christian people to contend for the faith. The Christian faith is defensible. Turn to another famous passage, 1 Peter So we're kind of working back toward Galatians a little bit, but we're still going to stay near the back of our Bibles. 1 Peter chapter 3. Beginning in verse 15. First Peter 3, 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So yet again, we have the same thing you can turn back to, Galatians, Peter and Paul and Jude. These were men who defended the Christian faith, who proved the Christian faith, who fought for the Christian faith. They believed that this was a defensible belief system. Now, this does not mean that everyone has to be on equal levels. Certainly, God has gifted certain people that they are going to excel in apologetic works more than others. Not everyone is called to be a PhD in apologetics, but there is a general understanding here that the Christian faith is defensible and worth defending. And this is important for ministry primarily in this way. What we are seeing in our world right now, the numbers are daunting and they haven't changed for many years. We are sending Christian kids to college and the numbers say something like close to 80% of them come home no longer Christians. They come home no longer Christians. We have a huge amount of Christians, Christian kids who grow up in Christian homes who the first time they leave their home, their faith is obliterated. And, and, and I think when you look at this, what's, what's happening here is that we are really not doing a great job, not just collectively as a whole, of teaching our children that the Christian faith is true and historical and defensible, teaching them how to defend it. And so what happens is in most kids' minds, the faith is just kind of a family tradition. It's just kind of something we believe, right? That's kind of the culture in America. You, you grow up in certain parts of the country, you go to church, Right? And then all of a sudden they go off to university, they go off to college, and they hear people who are not only not Christians, but they hear people who present their non-Christian worldviews as if they are grounding it and defending it in science, in logic, in math. They hear evangelists, otherwise known as professors, 
presenting to them false Christian ideologies, but they're not presenting them in, in, in the vacuum of a tradition or a family faith. They're presenting this as academic. They're presenting it as proven. And so what kids are left to do now is they're left to, okay, I've got my family tradition or I've got science. I've got my family tradition or I've got history and logic and truth. You see, we have to understand how important it is not only for unbelievers but for our children that throughout the ministry of the church, throughout the life of the church, we slowly help people and teach Christians to see that the Christian faith is defensible and that it's true. It's not just a tradition. That's why Paul reminds us that this is not the, he says in, in verse 11, or forgive me, verse 12, that this was not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor would I taught it. This is not just hand-me-down faith, old, expired Greco-Roman mythology. This is true. This is historical. So apologetics matters in ministry. That's important for us to know. But we see the second point. The second important thing for us to know this is really important for the life of the church and ministry, is that the gospel is transformative. The gospel is transformative. What does that mean? It means that the gospel has a transforming power to it. It transforms us. It changes us. Look at, look at Paul's own testimony, beginning in verse 13. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. So before Paul encountered the, the Christ, before he encountered the true gospel, he says, I had a former life, a former religion. And what I was doing in this, I was successful I was, I was doing a good job. I had a, a safe, steady, successful career ahead of me. And I was persecuting God's people because I was so zealous for my faith. I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers. So Paul was a man who was sold out for his religion. And he was, he was advancing vocationally. Everything was riding on this life. But what happened? Verse 15 but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Once Paul encountered the gospel, his life, as he always knew it, was completely different. He changed we see Paul immediately break out into immediate obedience. The man who used to persecute the faith, the man who used to hate Christ and hate his church, has now radically transformed. And that's what we see again, and look at what he says in verse 22, as word got out about this. And I was still unknown in person after a few years to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. You see, Paul had a radical transformation when he encountered Christ. The gospel changed him. 
And so what this does for us in ministry is it teaches us this very important principle of having a biblical understanding of conversion. You've probably been fairly familiar in the evangelical culture in America with revival meetings and altar calls. These sort of sensational gatherings where we hype people up and, 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 and sing amazingly emotionally stimulating music and then we preach this gospel sermon and then we ask people to come down and say a prayer. Half the time, they don't even have words to give to God. We have to give them for them. We have to say, why don't you repeat after me? Why don't you say these words after me? Now, am I saying that no one has ever gotten saved that way? Of course not. I've met countless saints who were saved by the grace of God because they heard the gospel at one of these revival meetings. So I, I do praise God for them. But we have to be very careful of this understanding that, well, what does conversion look like? It means that you repeated prayers that I gave you when you were emotionally compromised. We have no idea that that's a meaningful conversion. And that's why you'll find many, many people who think they're Christians because they one time walked down an aisle and said a prayer. But then they've walked away from Christ and the church for the rest of their life, but they think they got their ticket punched. But you see, for Paul, conversion was more so than just repeating a prayer that someone gave him. It wasn't just raising his hand when the preacher said, who wants to be saved today? No, Paul encountered Christ and was transformed. This is why Paul could write when he writes to the Corinthians that you who are in Christ are a new creature. This is why Jesus explains to Nicodemus that salvation is ultimately being born again. All throughout Scripture, we see that genuine conversion is not just merely repeating a prayer. It's a transformation of life. In other words, when someone truly encounters the gospel, they cannot walk away the same person. It doesn't mean that all of our conversion stories are going to be as miraculous as Paul. It doesn't mean that all of our conversion stories are going to be as dramatic as Paul. Right, you think about kids who grew up in a Christian home but maybe came to faith later on in life. Their, their lives maybe won't look as changed because they've been sort of genuinely living a Christian life, so to speak. So again, this is not to say that Paul isn't a kind of special example. I agree with that. But generally speaking, we are reminded that the Bible teaches us over and over again that a true conversion is someone who is repentant, someone who is changed, and someone who is being changed. But if we see no change, then we really have no reason to call it a genuine conversion. Because the gospel is a powerful gospel. It's not just an intellectual set of beliefs. The gospel is not like a, just a simple fact of history that you say, oh, okay, I believe that. And then you go on with your life. No, the gospel has a divine transformation power the Bible says that when you believe you are given the Holy Spirit and he is conforming you to the image of Christ. The Holy Spirit is in us and he is constantly working on us, constantly changing. So a biblical view of conversion understands that we're looking for transformation. We're looking for new creatures, people who can speak of their former life the way Paul did. So number one, apologetics is so important in ministry. Number two, a biblical understanding of conversion is that the gospel is transformative. 
But number three, we need to also remember in that process, number three is this, that God alone reveals the gospel. That God alone reveals the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. How does Paul understand his conversion? Because here's the thing, we know from the text that Paul was persecuting the Christian faith. He already knew the Christian message. He knew the gospel already. Jesus didn't have to tell him the gospel for the first time. He was persecuting a people because of this gospel. Paul was present when the first martyr, Stephen, was stoned. And Stephen preached that great sermon calling them to repentance. Paul was there. So it's not just simply hearing the gospel that automatically guarantees someone's going to repent and be changed. No, we do have to encounter the gospel, but ultimately, the difference between those who hear it and walk away and those who hear it and are transformed are what Paul says in verse 16, that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. You see, why is it that Paul ultimately accepted Christ and believed in Jesus? That's because it was the Father's will and the Father's plan. Paul says in verse 15, but when he who had set me apart before I was born. Right? So Paul's, remember what Paul's doing here is he's reminding the, the, the Galatians, I didn't earn my apostolic ministry. God didn't give it to me because I was so smart, because I was so great. God just looked at me and said, oh man, that guy deserves to be an apostle. I've got to make him one. No, he's saying, you see, God did not, I didn't earn my apostolic ministry. I didn't earn even my salvation because this was chosen for me before I was even born. Now again, when he says he who had set me apart before I was born, he's not technically talking about salvation there. He's talking about his apostolic ministry, but here's what I would ask. Could he be an apostle without being saved? <laughs> How could he be a, a non-Christian apostle? So obviously in the process of God setting him apart for apostolic ministry before he was born, God was simultaneously setting him apart to save him. God chose to save Paul before Paul was even born, and Paul described this process as ultimately the father revealing his son to me. God is the one who converts people. We don't convert people. We don't save people. We don't transform people. It is God and God alone who accomplishes this. Uh, just a couple really beautiful texts to highlight this point. Turn to Matthew chapter 11. There are lots we could turn to, but I'm going to limit us to two that I think will explain this better than I do. Matthew chapter 11 there's a, a really well-known verse in Matthew chapter 11, and it is beautiful. It deserves to be well-known. It's, it's what I call a, a, a coffee mug verse, right? These are, this is the kind of verse that you often see on coffee mugs and t-shirts and, and calendars because it's just so beautiful, and it's, it's verse 28. Jesus is speaking, and what does Jesus say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What a beautiful passage. 
right? I'm not trying to mock it. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. But, but here's what I'm getting at. It stresses me out that we always begin in verse 28. You see, we need to begin in verse 27. 28, Jesus extends this open invitation for all. Everyone, come to me, come to me. But what does he say right before he extends that invitation? Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are heavy burdened. You see, Jesus is showing us here that ultimately our conversion is the gracious choice of the triune God. That it is Christ who chooses to reveal. It is God the Father who reveals the Son. Another beautiful text turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I understand you might get the point, but I still think it's valuable to see God's Word state these truths because they're controversial. And these just give you verses that you can turn to, that you can go back to, 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 to uh, dive into this point deeper. So I understand you probably get the point, but I still think we should look at some of these texts. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if we stop there, this is very distressing. Right? What is the text saying up to this point? We can preach the gospel all day long, but the God of this age is blinding people to it. They can't see it. This is why Paul can hear the gospel over and over again and just continue to persecute the church. Preach the gospel all you want. They can't see it. But, verse 5, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ our Lord with ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how does one overcome the darkness that has blinded them to the gospel? Do they have to be smarter? Do they have to try harder? Do they have to be better? Do they have to change themselves? Do they have to transform themselves? Is this just some amazing act of volition, of free will? No, 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 no. If you are blinded, your only hope is that the same God who spoke light into creation can shine a spiritual light in your heart can shine a spiritual light in your mind that He can open up the revelation of His Son to you. See, we have to remember that we do not convert anyone. We do not save anyone. God does the converting. God does the saving. We see this, we won't turn there, but in John chapter 6, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, one point before we move on that needs to be pointed out. We need to understand exactly how this fits in with the other points and why this is important for ministry. 
you might be reading, you might be hearing this and thinking, well, doesn't that refute number one? Like, why do we do apologetics? Why do we defend the faith if ultimately you're telling me it's useless? Right? I mean, it's, it's ultimately God who has to give people understanding. I, I can't convert anyone, so why do apologetics? Well, the reason we do that is because although, yes, it is God alone who does the converting, what God converts people to is the message that we proclaim. So what God is doing is he's not just taking the seed and planting it in them apart from us. No, he is using the gospel that we proclaim, he is using the faith that we defend, and then he gives them understanding of that message. So our role to preach the gospel and defend the gospel is still vitally important because we are the ones that God is using to put that message out so that God can give them understanding of it. John Frame in his book on apologetics puts it this way. I think this is really helpful. God says this, God could have put the word, Scripture is the word of God. He's talking about proving the Bible to be true, but I, I think it has application here. God could have put the word, Scripture is the word of God in the Bible, and then, through the persuasive power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally convinced elect readers of the truth of the statement. But God's way is not to persuade people magically of the truth of his word. The Spirit certainly does persuade, but he persuades us to believe inherently rational content. In other words, the Spirit's work is not to persuade us of something for which there are no rational grounds, but rather to persuade us by illumining the rational grounds that obligate us to believe. Spirit-created faith is not blind. In other words, yes, it is God alone who reveals the gospel to us. It is God alone who persuades us and who convinces us and shines the light of the gospel. But the gospel that he is illuminating is a defensible, true gospel. Does that make sense? So we still have to present the gospel and defend it. Because God is not calling people to a, a defenseless gospel. So we have to preach the gospel. We have to proclaim the gospel. We have to defend the gospel. But ultimately, it is God who does the convincing. And this should be really encouraging to us in ministry because doesn't that just remove burden from your shoulders? Like, isn't this encouraging? You don't have to go to sleep tonight feeling as if it's your fault that someone else is going to hell. Maybe if you would have just used a different word when you preached the gospel to them or maybe if you would have worn a different outfit Maybe if the church would just be more entertaining. We don't have to blame ourselves for those things. We don't have to change the way we do church. We don't have to manipulate God's word. We saw in 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said quite the opposite. We refuse to practice cunning in, in, in these, these unsavory ways of manipulating or tampering with God's word. But we just simply openly proclaim the truth and God will shine the light of the truth in their hearts. So this is huge for us in ministry to just remember that we don't convert anybody. We don't save anybody. That's not on our shoulders. We are just faithful to God. We preach the gospel. We teach Christianity. And we trust God with the rest. This is amazingly freeing. But let's get through our last two points more quickly. We've seen that apologetics matters in ministry. 
We've seen that the gospel is transformative. We see that God alone reveals the gospel, but we also get something really important here related to number three. God is sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who was called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Look at what Paul is saying. Eventually in Paul's life, he did something, right? He, he transformed, he turned around, he went a new direction. And why did he did, do that? What was he doing? Well, he was doing what God set him apart to do before he was even born. So don't you see God's sovereignty over Paul's life? That Paul was not able to do something that God had not planned for him. Paul could not war with the plans of God and win. But we see that although Paul is still held accountable for his actions and he's praiseworthy for his ministry, he was ultimately doing what God set him apart to do before he was even born. So we are reminded of a second comforting truth, that God is sovereign. He's in control. Ministry can be hard, and it can be discouraging, and it can be difficult, and sometimes we're in a place where we don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. What's our hope in that situation? God's in control. God's in control. Paul was persecuting the church at one point, and that was probably terrifying. The, the Christians hated Paul. He was, it, would, it would have been easy to look at Paul and his work and to think the church doesn't stand a chance. How are we going to get through Paul's persecution? Saul's, that was his name then. How are we going to get through Saul's persecution? And what does God do? I'll save him. Right? Saul was an obstacle to the church. And in one moment, God took that away. So we don't have to be afraid of the obstacles in front of us because we have no idea what God's going to do. And we have to remember that he's sovereign over these things. He's not panicked. Right? I, this whole COVID-19 virus thing is frustrating for me. It's scary. I don't know how long this is going to go on. I don't know how many people are going to be affected. It just seems like the church has been put on halt. Ministry has been put on halt. And it's easy to feel like we've lost. But we have to remember, no, God's in control. He was in control of Paul's life, of Paul's ministry, of the early church. And he hasn't lost control right now. We cannot do ministry effectively. We cannot do ministry with any hope if we think for any moment in time God can lose grasp on history. No, he is in control. And that really provides a nice segue that God is sovereign is number four, our fifth and final point. And this is, again, related to that, but ministry requires a lot of patience. Ministry requires patience. If we want to have a successful ministry as a church and as a people, we need to be a patient people. And here's how I get that from Paul's testimony. Look at what he says in verse 18. So 15, 16, and 17, he outlines, okay, Jesus saved me and I immediately begin ministry. Paul jumps right in. He goes to Arabia and he starts preaching. And then what does he do? He's there for how long? Verse 18, then after three years. Paul goes into Arabia and preaches for three years. And by the way, that three-year section is barely touched on in the book of Acts. We know almost nothing about it. Because look at what he says. So he goes to Arabia and he preaches for three years. And we have no idea what kind of fruit he saw, what kind of uh, opposition he faced. So then after three years, what happens? He, well, then he goes to Jerusalem to visit Peter and he stays with them for two weeks in a day. 
And then what happens? Verse 21, then he goes off somewhere else, and he was still unknown. And then let's skip ahead. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. That moment where Paul is in Jerusalem with Barnabas, that's where most of the book of Acts covers. So, so let's put Paul's timeline. Paul gets saved and he preaches for three years in Arabia. And then he goes off into another region for 14 years. So that's almost 20 years of preaching and ministry. And the book of Acts covers almost none of that. So that means even after almost 20 years, 17 years of ministry, Paul still has barely even begun. Most of what we know about Paul, most of his ministry, takes place after that 14-year span. You read through the book of Acts, a lot happens after that. And all these letters we're reading from Paul were all happening during this latter part of his ministry. Paul signed up not for a quick ministry. God did not call Paul, hey, I'm going to send you there, mass revivals, everyone's going to be saved, you'll be your hero, and then you can retire and you can go play golf. Take your retirement, settle it, and go play golf. No, Paul was called to labor for years and years and years. And when you look at the state of the church at the end of the first century, it would be easy. We, we obviously now know, looking back on human history, that God was in control, but it would have been easy to look at the first century and feel like it didn't work. There was mass confusion and persecution and debate and turmoil. In Paul, we see throughout his own lettings and his own writings that Paul says uh, with some of his churches, I'm afraid that I've uh, labored over you in vain. Sometimes Paul poured out his heart to a church. He poured out his heart to people and it didn't work. Paul labored in ministry for years and years and years. And in those years, he had many great successes and many joys and many victories, but he also had a lot of persecution and a lot of failings and a lot of discouragement. And so why would we think for us ministry is going to be different than the Apostle Paul? Ministry is going to be very similar. It's going to take years and years of hard work. And we're never done and there will be many joys and many victories and many triumphs and we will have many friends. But there will be hardships and loss and persecution and failures and discouragement, betrayals, fighting. Ministry requires great patience. Even in the book of Acts, things rarely happened overnight. God is playing the long game. He is a patient God and so if we want to be in his will according to his timing, we will be a patient people. So don't rush ministry. Don't grow too discouraged because things aren't going your way right now. Play the long game. We labor for years and years and years with patience, knowing that our faith is true and defensible, that we need to train our children to see the faith as consistent, true, historical, and defensible. And we labor on remembering that it is God alone who brings about repentance and faith to the sinner. And we labor on remembering that the gospel that we preach is a powerful gospel that is able to transform people, make us born again, make new creatures in Christ. 
We labor on in the hope of a sovereign God who's in complete control of the universe, the world, and of the church, and of our ministry. And we labor on in patience and hope, knowing all of these other things. Apologetics matter. The gospel transforms. God alone saves sinners. God is sovereign, and we need to know those things and labor on with patience and endurance and hope. And Paul's testimony reveals those things to us. 